Today on Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, Paul says this, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordained it in all the churches. There's certain things you'll see in the New Testament letters that what Paul expected in Corinth, he expected in the other churches and the other cities. That's why there should be certain things that mark churches that own the name of Christ. are the marks that identify your church? How would you describe the place where you worship each Sunday? Welcome to Know the Truth, where today we're hearing another message from Philip DeCourcy's study in Revelation called You've Got Mail. As we look at the seven letters to the seven churches, maybe you'll identify the first century church that's most like yours. If you miss any part of this series, you can catch up online at ktt.org. Now, here's Pastor Philip with the conclusion of a message. It's titled, The Only Opinion That Counts. You do need to note, and you'll see it as we go through the letters successively, that there is a repeated format in each of the letters. Let me just give you the heads up. If you look at each letter in your own time this week, you'll see it always begins with a command written to the angel or the pastor or messenger of the church. That's always followed by a self-description of Christ that's taken from chapter 1 and made particularly applicable to the church it's being addressed to. That's followed by a commendation of the church's good works. That's followed then by an accusation of sin in the life of the church. With that recognition and accusation of sin, there comes an exhortation to repent. Following the exhortation to repent, there's an exhortation to discern the truth of what is preceded in that refrain he that hath an ear, let him hear. That's repeated in every letter. And then it's always rounded up, or for the most part, with a promise to overcome. Do this. Hang in there. Continue to struggle for holiness and fight against the world that seeks to press you into its mold because in the end, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. He gets the attention of the pastor. There's a Christological centricity to all that's going to be said. Christ recognizes the good, but he points out the bad. He calls him to repentance, and he excites them with the thought of heaven and rewards to follow. Here's an interesting thing, the solidarity of the letters. For the most part, I'll bet you most of you missed this thought. And the point here is this, that these letters, although written to particular churches, are also addressed to the church at large. And here's how I know it. Number one, every letter begins with a conjunction after the letter to the Ephesians. Look at uh, chapter 2 and verse 8, and to the angel of the church in Smyrna. Look at chapter 2, 12, and to the angel of the church in Pergamos. Look at chapter 2, 18, and to the angel of the church in Thyatira. And that's true of all the other letters. They're joined. They're joined together by this conjunction. These letters are bound together in one book, so to speak. They belong to the book of the Revelation. Now, while the book of the Revelation got to Ephesus, it was read in Thyatira, and it was read in Sardis. And so those churches read about the other churches, and the other churches read about those churches. 
There's a solidarity to those letters. You'll also see it by the fact that at the end of each letter, you have that refrain. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church at Ephesus. No, doesn't say that, right? It says to the churches, plural. There's an appeal beyond the immediate recipients. And I think that's so important. And I want to make a couple of applications that I think is rather challenging and, and applicable today. If someone wants to describe Kindred Community Church, they might describe it like this. We are a Bible-believing, independent, non-denominational church. Now, we are an independent church under Christ, hopefully led by godly men, driven by the Word of God. We're independent in that sense, but you know what? We're only one little chapter of the story. We're only one part of the family. And there's a certain community, or what the old theologians call the communion of the saints. We belong together because we belong in unity with him. And so I wanted to make this statement, and if you're thinking, man, you'll write it down and think about it. While each church is a whole church, each church is not the whole church. And so in the Bible, you'll see an independence recognized, but you'll see an interdependence recognized. That's biblical. In fact, if you read the New Testament, you'll see that they lent on each other and they learned from each other. They didn't stand in isolation from one another. The Bible seems to hold out a beautiful balance between autonomy of the local church and loving interchurch fellowship. They had a certain conscious awareness that they belong to a kind of cosmic family of believers beyond themselves. Look at Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6. Colossians chapter 1 and verse 6, and you'll see what I'm talking about when Paul says this. In fact, we'll back up into verse 5. Because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven, of which you heard before the word of the truth of the gospel, which has come to you as it also has in all the world, and is bringing forth fruit as it is also among you since the day you heard and knew the grace of God and truth. Paul's recognizing when this church was formed and he's rejoicing in it, but he wants him to know just as you got saved and started to form as an assembly of New Testament baptized believers across the world, it was happening also. You belong to a big family, the body of Christ, all those baptized into the body by his spirit. And you know what? What happens in one congregation should Gain the full interest of another congregation. Stay in that letter. Go to chapter 4 and verse 16. I referenced it earlier. Now, when this epistle is read among you, see that it is also read in the church at the Laodiceans. Was the letter addressed to the Laodiceans? No. But you know what? What was going on in Colossae was important to those in Laodicea. And then those in Laodicea should have been important to those in Colossae. They also um, were guided by directives that went to one church and then was put out to all. Um, I'll just give you a verse in that direction. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 17, Paul says this, But as God has distributed to each one, as the Lord has called each one, so let him walk, and so I ordained it in all the churches. 
There's certain things you'll see in the New Testament letters that what Paul expected in Corinth, he expected in the other churches and the other cities. That's why, although churches are different, although as you travel, even within our own county or across the world, you'll see different expressions of the life of Christ in the body of Christ, there should be at the core a certain familiarity. There should be certain things that mark churches that own the name of Christ. And we could go on extrapolating and explaining this, but, but I think the point I simply want to make, in the truest sense of the word, there's no such a thing as an independent church. Every church is enriched by the support and resources of other churches and other Christians. Rugged individualism, territorialism has nothing to do with New Testament Christianity. A highly independent church with a fortress mentality is an ugly thing in the sight of God. I want to say that again. We need to hear it. A highly independent church with a fortress mentality is an ugly thing in the eyes of God. Some applications for us as elders and for us as a church, we need to do more thinking about how do we enrich ourselves with enriching relationships with other churches of like faith and practice. We must seek a greater involvement in the worldwide body of Christ with all its varied histories and cultures. In application, we must guard against I only am left mentality. Remember Elijah? I only am left. Poor me, but Lord, I'll hold the fort. And God says, you idiot, there's seven, there's 7,000 who haven't bowed the knee. We should shun the idea that we're the only ones doing it. And you know what? I picked that up a little. Sometimes I can escape from my lips or from our lips. We need to guard that kind of thinking because we're not the only show in town, so to speak. We're not the only place that God is doing a work. And the true badge of distinction for a church is love, not that we're not like other churches. In application, we must recognize Christ and others, even other traditions. Now, I don't mean at the expense of the gospel. I won't fellowship with anybody who doesn't know who Jesus is and what he did on the cross, and that faith alone is the means by which we secure the imputed righteousness of Christ where we're made justified by God's grace. No compromise on the gospel and the fundamentals of the faith. But we also realize that there are points of genuine theological difference among good people. We don't have to be identical twins as someone told me to be brothers and sisters in Christ. I like the story of the man who ran to stop another man from flinging himself off a bridge into a river. He said, why are you killing yourself? And the man said, you know what? I have nothing to live for. The guy said, don't you believe in God? Yes, I do. What a coincidence, so do I. Are you a Jew or are you a Christian? The guy said, I'm a Christian. What a coincidence, so am I. Protestant or Catholic? Protestant, what a coincidence, so am I. Baptist or Anglican? Baptist, what a coincidence, so am I. Pre-trib, mid-trib, mid-trib. And the guy pushes him off the bridge. 
And as the guy falls down, he shouts, die, you heretic. I know it's a silly story, but if we can get by the humor, the tragedy is that sometimes what happens. So much commonality in Christ, so much um, agreement around the gospel. There's some things you have to think through. Uh, Al Mohler did it in an article a number of years ago, really helped me, called it theological triage. If you're, there's an accident, multiple casualties, they come into an ER ward, and the triage nurse, it's a French word, has to decide who gets the treatment first. And we do need to apply a certain theological triage. We ought to be cooperating with believers where we center on the gospel. Could we plant the church with someone that doesn't believe in believer's baptism or the autonomy of a local church? Probably not. And you have to think through those issues of levels of involvement. But what we don't want is a silo mentality, a kind of hunker down us only mentality. Whatever you are, associations are good. And fellowships with those who love Christ are good where you co-opt and work together and for the sake of the gospel and the spread of the Savior of the Lord Jesus Christ across the world. You see the solidarity of these churches? Spurgeon said it always was odd to him that some people think so much about what God teaches them and so little about what God teaches others. Okay, the symbolism in the last few minutes the symbolism of the seven churches. Why seven letters? Good question. What's the significance of seven letters sent by Christ through John to these particular churches? Because there were other churches actually in Asia of equal importance. In fact, some probably of greater importance if you measure it a certain way. There was a church in Troas, Acts 20, verse 5, there was a church in Colossae. There's a whole letter addressed to the church in Colossae. They're in the Lycus Valley. They're in Asia Minor. They're not far from Laodicea. Colossians 1.12. You've got Hierapolis, Colossians 4.13. Other churches in Asia, why this seven? Here's my best answer. Since seven is the number of completeness, it's probably the case that although these letters are addressed to real churches in concrete situations, they are generally representative of conditions existing elsewhere and conditions that will persist until Jesus comes. I think you've got seven because these seven churches and their particular problems and the particular circumstances they're in is rather representative of what the church at large faces. That's why we have at the end of each letter, he that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit's saying to the churches. Hey, what's going on in Ephesus is probably going on over where you're at. What's going on at Pergamos is probably happening where you live. And so that's how I understand the symbolism of these letters. These seven churches are real churches, and these letters were written, first of all, to them to address a problem. But you know what? They are representative of things that are kind of universally true by way of obedience or disobedience in the life of all other churches. Christenstam said this, just as the seven spirits in the book of Revelation are none other save the one Holy Spirit. In chapter 1, verse 4, we read of the seven spirits of God. 
We know there's not seven spirits. There's one spirit, but seven's being used there as a term of completeness. So he says, just as the seven spirits in the book of Revelation and none other save the one Holy Spirit and the completeness of his activity, so from one aspect, the seven churches are but one church of Christ. Now, time's gone on me, so here's what I'll say. I do not believe that these seven churches represent seven ages across church history. Many premillennial, especially prophetic scholars, offer up the idea that they're, they're kind of chapters in the unfolding of, of church history. The, the Ephesus, the apostolic church, Smyrna, the Roman persecution, uh, Pergamum, the age of Constantine, Tharatara, the age of the dark ages in the Catholic church, Sardis, the Reformation, Philadelphia, the missionary movement, Laodicea, today in the apostasy that's going on. I don't believe that's true for a whole lot of reasons, but fundamentally, these are letters are addressed to churches, and that's what the text tells us. Doesn't tell us that they're they're ages; they tell us they're churches, seven kinds of churches that have existed in each period. And a careful analysis of church history will show you that you really can't fit those together that tidily. You ever hear of Procrustes? He was part of Greek mythology, and when he got his enemy, he had a bed. And when he put them on the bed, if they were too long, he cut their heads off, and they were too short, he stretched them to fit the bed. That's Procustian hermeneutics. When you try to fit all those ages into those seven churches, it just doesn't work. Here's the point. They're typical. They're representative. Let's quickly go through them in about two or three minutes. The church at Ephesus is a church that Alua hive of activity, was busy falling out of love with Christ. Does that ring a bell? Can anybody identify with that? The danger of carrying Christ in your Bible, but not in your heart? Here's a church made up of second-generation Christians who had lost the authenticity and fervor of their fathers who had left their first love. The church at Smyrna was a church that, that counted it a privilege not only to believe on Christ, but to suffer for him. They're told to be faithful unto death. Martyrdom for them was a lifestyle, not just a, an event at the end of one's life. This was a church made up of people who understood that Christianity costs you something. A Christianity that costs you nothing, says J.C. Ryle, is worth nothing. The church at Pergamum represents the church that's become a country club. Worldliness and sexual immorality was infiltrating the church at Pergamos in chapter 2, 13 through 15. This was a worldly and accommodating church. This was a church made up of people who were happy that Christ died for their sins, but they never intended to die to their sins. The church at Tharatara was a church of theological compromise. They'd been listening to the false prophetess. Chapter 2, verse 20, this was a kind of buffet-style faith. Take the bits you like, discard the bits you don't like. There was no theological discernment. They had watered down the gospel, and there was a theological liberalism that began to breed moral libertinism. Bad theology leads to what? Bad behavior. This was a church made up of people who were happy to be in error and sin. What about the church at Sardis? They had a name that they were alive, but what? They were dead. Here's a church living off its reputation. Here's a church that was living in the afterglow of others' authenticity and others' work. This was a church made up of Christians who simply were going through the motions. Ring a bell? 
challenge anybody? These are seven churches that you'll find alive today. These are seven churches full of all kinds of Christians who struggle with their walk with God. This church at Philadelphia took the open door of opportunity. Here was a church that was given to missions and passion for evangelism. They lived as Christians for a dying world. The church at Laodicea, full of itself, but empty of God. Is that not a frightening letter? Full of self, empty of God. This was a church made up of Christians who were proud and prayerless and who were in the crosshairs of God's discipline. 70% of these churches and these Christians needed to repent. Do we not need to repent? In fact, let's be honest about it. As some of the old Puritans used to say, we even need to repent of our repentance because too often it's not real. Too often it's shallow and weak. Do we not see reflections of ourselves among the Christians at Ephesus and Sardis and Smyrna and Philadelphia and Pergamum and Laodicea? Surely we do. I have this week as I've spent time there, and we're going to look at each letter successively. Like the story of Dr. Robert G. Lee, famous pastor of um, a church in Memphis where later Adrian Rogers was the pastor until his death. He, he preached one excoriating sermon against sin one day, he pulled no punches, and at the end of it, a lady whose feathers had been ruffled met him at the door and said, Pastor, I didn't appreciate the sermon one little bit. To which Dr. Lee replied, the devil didn't like it either classify yourself. The thing is, we go through these letters, as we look at each of them in each city and each church, we'll have to classify ourselves. Am I falling out of love with the Lord Jesus? Am I not watching and guarding my doctrine and theology? Am I impacting the world or is the world impacting me? Do I have a heart for the lost? Am I involved in evangelism and missions? Is martyrdom a lifestyle? What am I willing to give up to move the purposes of God forward in my life? Or am I so full of myself that there's no room for God? Oh God, we need you every hour. Would you meet us? At the end of this hour, speak into our lives, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Hearing about all the struggles, weaknesses, and victories of the seven churches in Revelation reminds us that there's nothing new under the sun. You're listening to Know the Truth. If you miss any portion of today's message titled The Only Opinion That Counts, you can find it online at ktt.org. And if you're looking for an easy way to listen while you're out and about, just search your favorite app store or podcast platform for Know the Truth with Philip DeCourcy. At Know the Truth, we teach God's Word with boldness, clarity, and conviction so that believers are encouraged daily, equipped to serve, and engaged to share the gospel wherever they go. But we can't do it without your help. We rely on the generosity of listeners like you to bring these Bible studies to your station. And when you give a generous one-time gift— or sign up for a monthly auto gift, you help keep Know the Truth on the air so that listeners can continue growing in their faith. 
When you give to Know the Truth this month, we'll say thanks by sending you the book, Authentic Influencer, The Barnabas Way of Shaping Lives for Jesus. Every follower of Jesus can be inspired, instructed, and mobilized to influence the world from right where they are. And this book will show you how through the impactful story of Barnabas. It's yours with a gift of any amount. Call 888-644-8811 or give online at ktt.org. I'm Wayne Shepherd. Come back tomorrow when Philip DeCourcy begins a message titled, Lost That Loving Feeling. That's Friday on Know the Truth. Today's program was produced and sponsored by Know the Truth Incorporated. Jesus said, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free.